Hello, and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 74 movies, one cage. This is episode 42, Sunny from 2002, directed by Nicolas Cage. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Joey Lewandowski, and with us today is a very special guest, and someone I'm honestly a little intimidated to talk to, because it's someone who might know more about Nicolas Cage than we do. We have with us today author Lindsay Gibb, who wrote National Treasure, Nicolas Cage. It's part of the Pop Classics series. You can buy it now on Amazon or wherever amazing books like this are sold. Hello, Lindsay. Hi. How are you doing today? Uh, pretty good. Thanks for inviting me. So I guess they're really... Oh, well, well thank you for being here. I, I, got, I got... Oh, I'm so flustered. I got so ahead of myself. <laughs> um, so I guess the really big question is, why did you write this book? First, I had a friend who wrote the Ninja Turtles book in this series, so I found out that the series existed, and then I was doing a Nicolas Cage film group with friends for about a year, I think, at that point. I thought, oh man, I should write about Nicolas Cage, and then my friend who was writing the Ninja Turtles book at the time was like, oh my gosh, you really, really should write about Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I just pitched them kind of a like brief, like, this is why I want to write about Nicolas Cage, which is basically me saying, I think he's a great actor, but he gets a lot of flack. And he's a meme, which is sort of overtaking his status as an actor. So I thought all of that was kind of interesting. And I wasn't really sure how I was going to write about that. But I just thought, hey, if somebody gives me a chance, I'll figure it out. They said yes. And I kind of figured out what the book was going to be about after that. Well, that's great. Yeah. And actually, that kind of bring me, brings me to a question I had. In the book, you cover a lot of things. You cover him as an actor. You cover his movies. You cover... What I thought was the coolest thing was a lot of the interviews and the DVD commentaries that I haven't heard. Mm -hmm. A ton of great quotes. But you have that one chapter about sort of Nicolas Cage as a meme. You really kind of stay neutral. Like, you don't let us know how you feel about it. Okay. When we started Cage Club, we kind of wanted to not do that kind of thing. I don't like that that's how people know about him. But in terms of you, like, how do you feel about Cage as meme? Like, is it good that it's getting his name and face out there? Or is it, like you said before, more so tarnishing his reputation as an actor? I guess just like articles that are about him, I feel like anytime a journalist or like film critic writes about him, they sort of take that generic like point of view, like, oh, he's made another movie. He's made another crappy movie. This is all he does now. And I feel like that's kind of what the meme is doing too, is just saying like, here's this joke. But I mean, it depends. Some of the memes I think are from a loving place. Some of them are made by fans, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that, it is kind of just overtaking his status as an actor. You talk about in the book about how there is that Nicolas Cage art show, and it sort of seems like the same thing. Like, there's this possibility for just love and actual outpouring of affection, but then it gets muddled in with all these people just sort of jumping on the bandwagon because they vaguely know about him. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I, I didn't get to go to either of the art shows because they were in California and I'm in Toronto. But from what I saw, just like of coverage of it or pictures of some of the art that was in the collection, it wasn't a lot of like tributes. It seemed like it was a lot of exactly what the memes are, like his face on things. But I don't know, like I kind of say in the book, like I think his face on things, whether it's people making fun of him or not, I think it's sort of showing what maybe we think about him, which is that he can kind of do anything and he can be anyone. So I think people are seeing that and that's part of what's making people put his face on everything because they can sort of <laughs> picture him as everything, which speaks to him as a good actor, I think. Because I feel like most people who are sort of 
on the internet in whatever that means, you know what I mean, in terms of engrossed in internet culture, have maybe shared his bug-eyed look from Vampire's Kiss, (laughs) but, like, how many of those people have actually seen Vampire's Kiss, or how many people even know that Vampire's Kiss is a movie? It's sort of taken on its own life, and you do, like, a beautiful job of talking about what he's actually trying to accomplish in that role, Mm -hmm. and about how the director is basically like, hey, go for it. Like, we're going to keep everything else really low-key because we want to emphasize your transformation. Right. Particularly with that meme, because that meme itself has, like, a name. It's the you don't say face or whatever. But that's absolutely not what that moment in the movie is. He's not saying you don't say. He's like, I think that's the part where he's, like, yelling at Alva and his eyeballs are getting huge. But it's turned into something else. And I do think that a lot of, most of the people who share it have never seen Vampire's Kiss and don't know what it is. Maybe don't even know that's Nicolas Cage, you know? Just the face. (laughs) One question that I have for you sort of in in general about this, and it's something that I've kind of dealt with a lot, especially as we, as I talk to people, and I'm sure the same thing happens to Mike, as we talk about what we're doing here, mm-hmm. there's so many people who just generalize that, oh, he's always crazy and everything, he always, he's always bad and everything. How do you respond to that now, now that you have this body of work that, like, are you tired of trying to defend yourself and give good examples? Like, do you just, like, hand them the book and just say, <laughs> hey, here's, here's all my thoughts about the matter? Uh, I hope that I can just hand them the book. I'm more articulate in writing than I am speaking. Yeah, I think I did kind of tire of trying to defend him all the time. And uh, I was doing a reading at something recently and a guy came up to me afterwards and he said, I've secretly loved Nicolas Cage all these years and I haven't been able to talk about it with anybody because nobody understands. And now I can read your book and use this as like my defense. So I'm glad that I've helped. I hope. I hope that. I mean, that's that's beautiful. That's like That's sort of why we're doing this too. I think that like we can say, hey, if you want to know why... I don't know, Birdie, this like this movie that you've never heard of from 1984 yeah. is actually touching and tender and like worth your time. Here's an hour of us talking about it. And it's just, it's great. You know, a movie that you've never heard of that you mentioned in the book, like, you know, Red Rock West, that nobody knows, but as him calm and sort of acting quote unquote normally. Right. And just like a tremendous movie. Yeah. So this movie today is sort of the ultimate cage club movie nicholas cage is in this movie a little bit toward the end and we will definitely get to that because it is amazing <laughs> but this movie is directed by nicholas cage it's set in new orleans where we had zondali set where wild at heart passed through what i like is that it's set in 1981 which is the year that cage started his career and it stars james franco in a role that basically seems like it was written for Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Like, it's hard to watch this movie and not see Nicolas Cage as this title character. Well, I think Nicolas Cage wanted to play that role back in, I don't know when this was written, but I think it was in the 80s originally that he discovered this and he wanted to play Sonny, but then that just never worked out. So then later he got the chance to make the movie, and I think that James Franco is a great choice I actually was going to write a bit in the book about how James Franco is kind of the most comparable actor to Nicolas Cage, but I just never ended up writing it. But I think that's true because I think he is someone who has tried a lot of different things and reinvented himself a number of times, particularly if you look at like him doing that stint on General Hospital, like he's done some weird things that people can't explain in a similar way that Nicolas Cage does. Do you think that James Franco fits into that advanced genius theory that you talk Hmm. about? (laughs) I've had a hard time applying that theory. If I thought really hard about it, maybe I could apply it to James Franco. But the person who created that theory is probably the best person to apply it. (laughs) 
Because, I mean, Mike and I have talked about what we could do sort of as a follow-up to Cage Club. The only person we came close to thinking was Tilda Swinton. And she could be kind of cool. But watching this movie, I was telling Mike, it makes you want to watch all of James Franco's movies because he is always, like, crazy and different and just, like Cage, fully committed to roles. Definitely, I agree. Yeah, I feel like Franco has that dual persona in Hollywood as well, where he sort of split between his dramatic acting and his and his comedy acting, and, and often those fans don't really cross over as much, and, and I think Cage falls into a similar dilemma, you know, for, for trying so many different genres, and until he's done every genre that everyone needs to pay attention, I, I get a lot of cage from franco which is interesting because i sort of thought of of nicholas cage as sort of unique in a way i don't know i'm seeing like a new generation come along and maybe he's picked up a thing or two from him and maybe this is an actor who's been influenced by him and is getting to work with him so i was really interested right from the start right from franco's sort of presence to see what he was going to do with this role how he might inhabit it the way Cage may have, or if he was just going to make similar choices, being a similar type of actor. Well, what I liked reading about this movie was that we've talked a lot about how Cage sort of does whatever it takes to get into the role, whether that's taking driving lessons or becoming fluid in Navajo for no reason. (laughs) Apparently for this movie, James Franco visited male strip clubs and even followed around a male prostitute, even following him into a room when he was on a job, that just seems like the kind of, like, you know, preparation for the role and commitment to the part, it feels exactly like the kind of thing that Nick Cage would do. Yeah, they're both people who aren't willing to just find a niche and stick with it. They're looking to challenge themselves in every role. And that's interesting, his sort of preparation, you know, it it just goes to show, like, he's making these calculated choices, you know, that some of this, you know, these outbursts or things that happen they may appear random but they're definitely pre-thought and meant to go across as well like there's definitely a moment in here where i was like okay this seems a little improv but then i sat back and thought no this is probably very meticulously thought through and the movie starts and i I was watching this movie a little bit differently than i watch a lot of the other cage club movies because cage isn't necessarily in it that much he's probably only on screen for two or three minutes And the story was interesting to me, especially I was trying to figure out what was really going on, but I was also watching for the directorial style, for obvious reasons, and the movie starts on a close-up of Franco, and I I realized in this movie that Nicolas Cage, as a director, and this is the only thing he's ever directed, uh, and maybe, Lindsay, you can speak on this, we heard rumors when they were filming Trapped in Paradise, apparently the director kind of gave up and just sort of Nicolas Cage directed a lot of that. Did you read any of that in your research? Wow, no. No, I didn't. (laughs) I can't say I really sought out stuff on Trapped in Paradise that heavily (laughs) in my research. What we read was that everybody sort of hated the experience on set there so much that nobody wanted to be there. And apparently that even carried over to the director who also wrote the movie. And so Cage just sort of took over control and said, we're going to do it this way. It's weird to see this actor, you know, in 75 movies has only one directorial credit. Mm -hmm. But I just think it's weird to have this incredibly accomplished actor only doing one movie or one thing ever. I wonder if it speaks to him and how he sort of is always trying something new and, you know, maybe he's tried directing and now he's trying other things with acting and I don't know I mean I guess he could direct something completely different from this and that would still be a different experience but maybe he just hasn't found that thing yet 
I mean, he's never written anything either, which sort of surprising. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's not necessarily everyone's strength. Maybe he doesn't like writing. Maybe he doesn't have original ideas. I don't know. Like, while I say that, though, I kind of feel, find that hard to believe because the things we've heard about him and some of the examples that you include in your book, it seems like he's kind of rewriting his part in a lot of movies, that he has you know, these very detailed ways that he's looking at his parts, whether it's adaptation, which is coming up next, or all these other movies that he just sort of looks at his character, and if he has time to prepare, it seems like he's rewriting it. But I think it's kind of weird that he's never actually written anything or has his name as a credit on anything. And it's funny, because I think his dad wanted him to be a writer, and I don't know if that sort of pushed him away from writing, but I got the impression that he was kind of into writing enough that his dad pictured him as a writer, but... Yeah, maybe, I don't know, writing wasn't his thing. I noticed that he actually is a producer on a couple of films as well that he's not in. Now, he produces you know, some of his own films as well, but before this came out, he helped with Shadow of a Vampire about yeah. the making of Nosferatu, a reimagined sort of fictional telling of that. Yeah, so I picture him constantly reading scripts and looking for projects and stuff, and perhaps he just hasn't come across anything as personal as this, you know, it seems that there's something about this material, be it, you know, his love of New Orleans or the male perspective in a mostly dominated profession of some, you know, I think that's a very interesting viewpoint we get into with this film. So perhaps this just spoke to him on a certain level that he felt this needed to come out of him. And, you know, he needed to be the one to tell this. And, and I actually, you know, think he, he tells it very well. As a director, I noticed he's not very concerned with Flash. And we've come across a few guys like Brian De Palma and Martin Scorsese, <laughs> you know, and those guys are maestros with their cameras and sometimes they could go you know a little too far but i love how he just wants to tell the story the best he can and knows sort of his limitations and isn't trying to be this artsy first-time director right out of the gate you know i I like his restraint within this and and that's interesting coming from a guy whose performances are very big most of the time (laughs) it's cool to see that he didn't start with a wild experimental type of movie i think that he's got great composition and there's there's a lot of like really cool shots in here but uh, you're right like he doesn't do a lot of flash toward the end there is a sequence you know a five minute sequence leading up to when he actually appears on screen that is sort of experimental but also falls right in line with a lot of the other ways and even like with zondali which this movie is sort of most closely associated with where james franco is just walking down the street in this drunken stupor and the camera sort of gets like fuzzy and out of focus and he's wandering down the street aimlessly, you know, like Zondali was at the end of that movie. It fits in with the narrative and the lore of Cage Club that we've, we've established to this point. I guess it works so well because the rest of the movie is so restrained and refined. Yeah, I feel like it's clear that Cage, as the director, is more interested in characterization than maybe the encompassing plot. There's a lot of close-ups on faces It seems to me like he focused a lot on each character when making the film. It opens with a close-up of Franco when there's like these real intimate moments. Like he's getting you right in the character's face, you know, whether they're sad or whether they're angry or whatever. Like we're there in the room with them and we feel what they feel. It doesn't really necessarily matter what's going on. The plot almost doesn't matter. Like it's kind of just a slice of life. You see him in these moments. You know exactly who this James Franco, who who Sonny is. I do think that it might be a little 
a little simplistic stylistically, you know, like there are a lot of close-ups and, and it, it can come across as him sort of getting stuck with one sort of thing or another, you know, he likes the close-up, the close-up is very expressive, it's a great shot to get a lot across it and I don't know. I mean, at times, perhaps he falls into the amateur director problem with things like that, but I'm definitely willing to forgive it because I'd rather have focus on character than not, you know? Like, we've also come across Cage Club movies where so many characters are just there to fill the screen, you know, deliver a a, a punchline or something, something of that nature. So the movie follows James Franco as Sonny, who is an honorably discharged soldier, returning to New Orleans to his mother's house. He meets up with his mother, and she says to him something about how this other girl will be back soon, and the two of you can like, do great things. And I was like, is this going to be another like long con movie? Like, Are they going to be con <laughs> artists, like a team-up, like some kind of duo like Deadfall? And then, no, it turns out that James Franco, before he went to the military, was a male prostitute, and his mother owns this brothel, and she just has, like, dollar signs in her eyes that her beautiful, amazing-at-sex son is back from the military, and he's going to be able to bring in some new customers and sort of get some repeat fa- old favorites. I love the way all that information is, is revealed, you know? Like, it's not, it's not like he comes home and, and there's a big sign on the door that says brothel, you know, or maison <laughs> derriere, or anything like that. And uh, you just feel like this boy's coming home you know he's looking around and i like how we're in his head with the piano music playing as he's looking into all the different doors and stuff when his mom came on the screen i immediately thought i don't know why i thought of wild at heart you know just like we were gonna get oh this strong overbearing mother here this mother figure and and that's gonna be you know big theme coming up and then piecing together over the course of the scene that he's a male prostitute really sort of like shook me you know i was not expecting that whatsoever I mean, I think the Wild at Heart comparison is an easy one to make because it was in New Orleans, but also she looks kind of like Marietta, and she's kind of crazy like Marietta, and she's also partnered up with Harry Dean Stanton. So there's a lot of comparisons here. I would say that this movie is kind of like if Zondali and Wild at Heart had a baby. Like, it's not as violent as Wild at Heart, and it's not necessarily as sexy as Zondali because, you know, Erica Anderson... Like, there's nobody in this movie that's naked the entire time like Erica Anderson was. But, like, it's sort of the hybrid of the two that, like, it's this sinister, dark world of New Orleans framed around war and sex, which is two things. I mean, aside from, like, the beach, like, this is sort of the big, two of the big three themes in Cage Club. Totally. I've seen this movie twice before watching it again to talk to you guys today. I never really thought about the comparison to Wild at Heart until today, and I really thought that Brenda Blethyn was super a lot like (laughs) the mother (laughs) character. Especially when she's like, when she gets angry and like really intense. In terms of Nicolas Cage's directing, I I feel like he gets some influence from David Lynch. So there's a little bit of that in here. I mean, I think that the film itself is a lot more like something maybe Mike Figgis would do or something, but there's a bit of Lynch in there. I also like how he gives his characters like these defining looks in a lot of ways, and he gets that across very clearly early on. You know, like uh, we'll see James Franco or 
Sonny will be accustomed to like his leather jacket and his white suit. Carol's going to have this great sort of valley girl look throughout the movie. But, but when we meet her, she's wearing like this striped robe. And I was like, oh, like she's basically here against her will in a lot of ways, right? Like it's almost like that robe is her prison for the meantime in a, in something. And then the mother has like this leopard print on underneath her clothes that's sort of throughout the movie, depending on her power status, like she wears more leopard print or leopard print sort of <laughs> appears as like, you know, on the the cushions of a bar and, and then it detracts until the end she's just wearing red and such i'm just looking for signs of cage the director and i'm picking up these little things i wasn't really expecting to, to notice i like that if he has the leather jacket like that just like <laughs> cage is basically like what would i wear if I were sunny? i'm just gonna i'm gonna throw him in leather jackets like you know maybe he likes elvis oh actually of course in a movie directed by cage and talking about cage directorial touches of course it'll be filled with amazing music that they probably had some kind of set budget and he's like well i'm gonna spend i don't know like a fifth of it just getting songs that we can put in here memorable notable songs rush he gets in this david bowie uh he gets 21st century schizoid man like they're not as important to the movie as in past movies like they're not an elvis song that he's going to sing in its entirety but we know by this point that cage loves music and it's cool to see these like iconic great songs setting the tone for the story that he's telling Yes, I definitely made a note about Rush and Devo. There's some Devo (laughs) in there, too, which is great. I think it does a great job of sort of reminding you from time to time when this movie takes place as well. I don't think it's there for that purpose. I think it's just more to sort of create like more of an emotional sense of what's supposed to be going on you know like the music sort of leading the scene perhaps or underlining it but from time to time it does remind me where we are in time and yeah i just love his choices you know we get bowie in there and we've had several david bowie references you know before yeah. cage gloves so that my ears perked up at that as well i think that the reminding us of the time that we're in is really important because we've talked about so much in cage club And Lindsay talks about in her book about how Cage is this guy, you write about how he basically is compared to a lot of times like a silent film actor. And we've talked about from time and again, throw him in any decade, throw him in the 1870s with Ned Hanlon and The Boy in Blue, throw him in The Cotton Club, throw him in Racing with the Moon, whatever decade he's in, he just sort of fits. And I know that 2002 to 1981 isn't a huge jump. But, like, Franco embodies this character of this guy, you know, born in the 60s or maybe in the 50s. Like, he's just he's just in it. Nicolas Cage knew what it was like to grow up in the 80s, you know? Like, he had that firsthand knowledge so that when Sonny is waking up in the morning to exercise, he made sure he looked like John Travolta would in 1981, you know, with the headband <laughs> and the cut-off sweats and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Franco, well, I'm not sure how old he is. I was one in 1981. But, um, yeah, I definitely got the... Uh, sense that like this guy this was that sort of decade I mean it doesn't New Orleans is so interesting because it, it just feels like this city that was built and instantly became an antique in a kind of way like everything just seems so like ancient uh, and beautiful and stuff that it is like this weird time warp city to begin with and you can feel like you're lost in time and you know you turn one corner and you see acid yellow and you're like uh oh <laughs> go turn the other corner and you could see someone totally normal so I don't know no, I'm wondering if it's just Cage, the director, directing Franco in the way you know that he's very familiar with. I think in terms of his look, like there's a moment where he's coming back to his house after having like been fitted for a suit, 
and he's got like white jeans and the leather jacket and stuff on and just from the back like he really looked like Nicolas Cage. There's also the scene I think that you referred to where he's like exercising and he's got the uh, headband on and he looks like Cage from Boy in Blue like exactly. That's right working Uh, out in the stables. Yeah totally the same because he looks so 80s in that scene from Boy in Blue even though that's clearly not when it takes place. Oh and speaking of Boy in Blue Lindsay you might have heard in past podcasts and it's going to come up a lot in this movie but when we talk about sex, we don't call it having sex. We call it compromising. <laughs> okay. Because in The Boy in Blue, they talked about compromising women. And we just love that. So whenever, in any movie, it's always about compromising. There'll be a lot of sun- <laughs> Oh, it's like the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's a movie about war and compromising. They could have just called it The Compromise. And <laughs> oh, well, later, uh, James Franco offers a compromise to someone. I wrote down it's not that kind of compromise. When he goes out for that drive with Mina Suvari, Carol, he says, like, I'll, like, I'll offer you a compromise. And I'm like, he's not talking about that. Like, it's a common enough word, but now forever, I will always remember, I will always associate that word with sex. I'll compromise with you. Keep the windows down. We can talk where you are. The main real conflict in this movie is that James Franco's sort of being pulled from two different sides. In the military, he had a friend who knew of jobs or knew of a way to sort of give Franco a better life. On the other hand, you know, his mother, who he seems to genuinely love and want to make happy, she wants him to be a prostitute for her. And so he's torn between the two. It's this internal struggle that sort of sets up all of the conflict in the rest of the movie. It's a pretty creepy early realization that she taught him to be a prostitute. I don't even know what that yeah. from, age, from age 12. Yeah, that took like the whole movie for me to still like <laughs> come that. to grips with. Mama turned him out. Yeah, I taught him everything he knows, she said. <laughs> Like, with pride, too. I couldn't believe what she must have had to go through. Is is prostitution legal in New Orleans? I, I don't. I kind of got the sense that, you know, everyone knows that he did this and he's back in town and everyone's sort of like, ah, oh, you're going to get back to it and stuff. So I only say that because I wondered if the mother, you know, didn't necessarily know any better or, you know, I'm not trying to defend her choices and that what she did was horrible. It's not like there's like this veil of secrecy around the prostitution ring that he goes early on to get fitted for that suit, and that one past customer of his comes up, and she's like, oh, Sonny, you're back. Like, oh, <laughs> she's, like, talking to her friend. She's like, this is the guy that, you know, spent that time in the lake house with me. Like, this is... And she's like, oh. I guess Franco is kind of, like, asking around for jobs. And I don't know if it's just, you know, based on his look or based on his reputation, but it's whatever combined with their reaction that this worker at the store basically says... Hey, yeah, we're, we don't. We're not hiring right now. It's clear from just the way that people interact with him that there's something off or sketchy or potentially illegal about Sonny. We also feel sorry for Sonny because it seems like it's very clear that he can't break out because everybody knows. Like it's just I don't know a small community or something that everybody knows what he used to do, so they just put him in that niche and he can't get out of it. And I really like his conflict too of not wanting to do what he's good at you know in a way like i don't know in a way, it reminded me of memphis reigns right like memphis has to come back and steal all those cars to save his brother even though it's the last <laughs> thing he needs to do i got the sense that you know Sonny went to the army to build a better life and that didn't work out and he's back to square one and yeah the last thing he really wants to do is be a prostitute again and what i'm getting from the beginning here like him meeting carol for the first time and 
her temptations and things and we get to see how smooth and suave and his control over women and things of that nature and yet he's just against that like and, and i you know i don't think he's got much of a chance but i'm really interested in watching him try to do something else well i think he doesn't have much of a chance because of his manipulative mother right that he like the first event that happens is that he comes back to the house maybe it's from the fitting or he's from somewhere and she says to him, oh, Harry Dean Stanton's in jail, you know, for shoplifting. He's like, oh, he's always in jail. She's like, yeah, but while you were gone, like, things changed. Now the bail bondsman wants a piece of Carol. Every time that Harry Dean Stanton goes to jail, as much as Franco wants to get out and create a better life for himself, it's clear that the more time he spends with this manipulative mother, it's going to make that impossible for him to do. Yeah, there's a really early argument that he has with her, like, pretty much... Right when he shows up and he, she's making him breakfast, he says he's not going to do it anymore. He's going to go down to Texas or whatever and get a new job. I really thought, even though I'd seen this movie before, I thought, oh, he's going to leave now. But he doesn't. He just goes and settles into his bedroom. And it's like right away, that's a mistake. If you stay, you're just going to get sucked back in. Yeah, it's crazy. His, isn't he referred to at one point as like a natural born whore and like yeah. all these <laughs> yeah. things? It's like a pony boy, like all this stuff. It's like crazy. He's like as if he was like the Michael Jordan of gigolos. He's got this rep and it's just to lose that reputation and to build an entirely new life for yourself. It's just such a daunting chore. Like it breaks most people and like not sure if he's got the support that he needs in order to change. And even when he like tries to change his life and we'll we'll build back up to this, but like when he goes on that date with that girl and they compromise one another and she's like, Oh, she's like, you're really good at this. Like you should do this for a living. He's like, you know, I do. And she's she's like, what? That was amazing. <laughs> You know, you should do that for a living. <laughs> oh. I do. What? what? I, mean, I mean, I used to. What do you mean you used to? Well, you asked me what I did earlier. Yeah? I used to be home. Wait a minute now. I thought you were in the army with Jesse. I was. I was. This is this is before the army. But look, I don't I don't do it anymore. I'm 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 through that world. I, I like this one much better. Admittedly, it was probably a little bit too early to admit that to her. <laughs> yeah. We can chalk that up to him just not necessarily having social skills or, you know, being in the military for so long. You know, he's trying to open up. He's, he's not trying to, like, hide his past life. He's trying to kind of embrace who he is, but also become something more, become something better. He's not even able to do that. A moment where he's in bed with Mina Savari and she says, like, no wonder your mom says that you're, yeah, a natural born horror. And I'm like, why, why mention his mom when you're about to sleep together? <laughs> it's interesting from early on, he gets this idea in his head that people who don't do illicit things or people who aren't criminals and he kind of considers himself one of these dredges of society he's like people like us that aren't thieves and hookers like they're good people right like if i could just get to the other side of the fence like no one's gonna have any problem we actually get harry dean Stanton, who's like man you just like everybody is the same you know and he gives him like this sort of cage advice early on right you know what you gotta do sonny you gotta face the fact this is all there is. Well, everybody else seems to be getting what they want without much trouble. 
That's because you're looking at it from your side of the fence. All them squares out there, they got just as many problems as you've got. So you think I should stay, too? No, I ain't saying that. I'm just... I just, I just want you to understand that if you, if you're going over to the other side, that, that you're going to inherit a whole new set of problems. And Jewel taught you a lot. As long as you're dealing with things you're familiar with. But getting up in the morning and going to work and raising kids and joining the PTA and all them other things you're craving for, it's a lot different in the flesh than it is in your head. And I think that's one reason he freaks out so much when he goes to, quote-unquote, Main Street, tries to live that life on the other side of the street. It sort of crushes his vision of what his ideal was. You know, there is no ideal, basically. and He's always going to be searching for something he can't really get. And he goes and meets up, I guess, with his military buddy, who's Scott Kahn, back from Gone in 60 Seconds. He asks about the job, and he's like, oh, yeah, there's no job. But what I do have is this girl. Like, there's these two sisters... I'm kind of dating one, but you can have the other. And Franco's like, I don't, know, I don't care. And then he's like, are, hey, uh, like, are, are you gay? Because like, you never hung out with the ladies in the military. And he's like, no, nah, don't, don't worry about me. But then like, they go on that date, and they come back, and they compromise one another. And like, what you're saying, this is sort of his chance at normal life. And then this girl is just as broken as he is, that she goes in the bathroom to freshen up or whatever she says, and then just starts like chugging cough syrup. That no matter who you are, no matter how intact your life seems to be, nobody has their stuff together. Yeah, and his reaction to finding that out is really intense. He just loses it and throws all her cough syrup everywhere and pushes her around. I love this Texas sequence, too. This is another place where I feel Cage shines as a director because when we're in Texas, everything to achieve that ideal state of mind or perhaps, you know, the fantasy of what is supposed to be a normal life, he he almost films this entire sequence as if it takes place in the 50s. I don't know if you guys got that vibe, right? And I think he did that to invoke those safe feelings about, like, you know, what we're supposed to think is normal. And it's just that much earth-shattering when James Franco opens up and is talking about all he wants are people to be honest and then he you know the person he's honest with is lies to him immediately and he freaks out it just is that much more crushing and i also got what a kind of like this blue velvety lynch vibe from it where it's like the underground of suburbia is just as dark as the underground of the city can be the last thing about this scene i wanted to mention is it just seems like you know everyone screwed up but at least he knows he's messed up at this point that's the one thing i kind of got from it he's like you guys don't even know you're messed up at least i kind of know i messed up i don't think it makes him better than them like he claims that's sort of one thing I did glean from this this whole sort of sequence. I got that 50s vibe too. I had a moment where I was like, wait a second, what? when does this take place? I mean, they were coming out of a movie theater where that was showing Chariots of Fire, so it wasn't the 50s, but it looked <laughs> it a lot. Also, there's a moment that distracted me in the Scott Con, like when he goes to Scott Con's house, and he gives him The Stranger by Camus. You mean Camus? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Now, that book is a really short, small book, and he gives him this slab, and I'm like, why yeah. 
why don't they have the right book? Like, what do they have of complete works of Camus? I also feel like Scott Kahn is not the kind of guy who's reading Camus, and, you know, James Franco is not the kind of guy that you give Camus to. Yeah, it was... I, it just, it's a weird... I don't know. I don't know. I caught a glimpse of Tropic of Cancer on the desk in James Franco's apartment, so that's a little more his speed, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like, they go on that date, and they, you know, they go to a movie theater, they're all sort of dressed old-timey, they go basically to an ice cream shop, it's all, like, very 50s dating stuff. James Franco, like, blows on this ice cream, and to the delight of everyone. But then, yeah, like, they go back, and they just, it's this catastrophic end to the night that things are going so well. Like, a lot of times in this movie, I think this is one of the one of the main examples, like, things are so close to being good in Franco's life. At the last minute, there's just, like, a detour that just screws everything up. It's like, I yeah, none of this is good for me anymore. Yeah, it feels like he's just constantly disillusioned. And I almost expect this moment to happen at the end of the movie, in a way, right? Because it's like, at the end of the first act, he's at rock bottom already, in a, in a sense. And it's like, all right, he goes... I love the cut of... Well, he, he shuts one door in Texas, and he opens the other door, and he's in New Orleans. Like, that was such a great jump cut. And it's just like, wow, like, he's got nowhere else to go. He's got no other choice, and now he's forced into doing, you know, exactly what he doesn't want to. I guess he kind of lets instinct take over to help him get through the first few days. Well, yeah, so, like... He's down in Texas, and he like this girl, he finds that she's drinking cough syrup, and he has this freak out, and it's kind of like a Nicolas Cage. I'm surprised like this isn't like more well-known, because this is like an a, incredible Cage-level freak out, where he just, like, he snaps. He's, his big vice, I guess, in this movie is breaking things. He's always, like, flipping tables and breaking TVs and throwing glasses throwing bottles, slamming doors. He's just very angry, and this is like an incredible little bit of acting. What's going on, man? Your friend's a junkie. She's, no, she's not a junkie. She drinks cough syrup, all right? You mean you knew? Yeah. So what? So what? Hey, I guzzle beer. You break shit, okay? She, uh, she drinks cough syrup, so what? It's supposed to be different. What? What's supposed to be different? Everything, you heard, the whole thing is supposed to be different. Nothing, just go so back to bed. Out of here! Why, am I unclean? Am I, am I not clean enough for you? Am I sick? Is that why? I'm better than all your fucking bullshit squares! Get him out of here! Then you can go back to your fucking life! Just go to bed, I'll Out of here! Out! You want me out? Wait. Fuck all of you! Get the fuck away from me! I said everything's fine, now get away from me! Why would you get out of my fucking life? Fuck you! Get the fuck away from me! You want me out of your house? Yeah! You want me out of your fucking house? Would that make you happy? You want me out? Yeah. Well, then you can go back to your yeah. fucking life. Yeah. Ah, get the fuck away from me. Get the fuck away from me. I'm better than you. I'm better than all of you. Fuck you. Fuck you. There's a part later that we're going to get to where he uh, beats up a guy kind of randomly. When he kicks the guy in the face to start with, that is such a cage like move. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in that scene, I thought he was going to beat him to death, which is sort of a cage club reoccurrence, as yeah. crazy as that sounds. These Sonny's violent outbursts, right? He's not dealing with the issues at all, and these are just these are going to come across and overtake him from time to time. And, and I'm, this is when I'm starting to realize how ironic his name is. You know, for a guy named Sonny, he's not very Sonny. <laughs> and he goes back to New Orleans, and he does. He pulls a couple tricks. 
and like the woman, the woman, I think it's like the first woman he goes back with is that woman that he saw in the clothing store, right? Yeah. Just an interesting fact about the, or an interesting bit of trivia about that actress is um, I saw that she was in Midnight Cowboy, which is also like sort of, it's like this seminal film about male prostitution starring Dustin Hoffman and John Voight. So I thought it was interesting how it invokes some of that movie as well. Maybe she'll only be in movies that are about male prostitution. <laughs> Maybe that's in her writer. <laughs> but then he goes to this woman's house. He goes to Maddie's, which I guess is another brothel in town. Oh. And I don't know if you caught this, but there's a Coppola sighting. His brother, Mark Coppola, is coming out. Like, he's the one with the prostitute walking down the stairs. And so it's just like a nice little, hey, bro, you want to be in this movie? Like, yeah, just... Just banging a prostitute. I was in your movie. You were in my movie. We're now yeah. we're even. I love that scene between him and, and that lady from the store. Just because it's just refreshing to see the comparison between like young boy, like this young guy and this you know older woman kind of thing going on, and he's just treating her with like respect. And it's they say like you know you're just selling sex, but he's clearly like into the whole game of it. Like he's into the emotional side. Like he wants her to feel like a woman and all that and i think that is really great and then it's such a kick in his gut when she has to like short change him you know and it's just like oh if you see him turn like immediately like that was all fake yeah you don't have my money like i'm i'm ready to go i'm ready to get out of here so you know it, it, i don't know it's just like he's got his toe in the water and it's already like very murky i think that that does a really good job of showing his two sides and it also sets up the next time a woman tries to stiff him but it's just a woman that he gets from Maddie's that he doesn't know. And she's just like, no, I don't have the money. I'm just not going to pay you the full amount. And that's when he's just like, I let it go one time, but I'm not going to let this happen a second time. This is not the kind of guy that I am. I'm not going to let a couple hundred dollars slide multiple times. Yeah, and that was for much more effort as well, right? Like, he had to get a cop uniform, drive way out into the country, like, do this whole role-playing thing, and much more time and expense than what he did for $150 or whatever he got stiff for. He has another one of those extremely violent outbursts. You know, one of those classic $300 dress jobs, or whatever he calls it. <laughs> I feel like we were talking earlier that we know a lot about some of these characters, but I feel like we never really get a sense of who Harry Dean Stanton really is. I think the closest that we get to him is that in this scene, while Sonny is transitioning back into his old life of prostitution, Harry Dean Stanton's talking to Sonny's mother, and he says to her, you never gave that boy a chance. All his life you've been controlling him, and you know what you're doing isn't right. This is like a good moment that he's sort of on Sonny's side, or at least thinks what's happening is going wrong isn't ideal, but I don't know that we ever necessarily get a real reason as to like why he's in this movie or like what purpose he serves. There's a scene before Sonny goes to Texas where they're talking at the kitchen table and he, you know, says that he hopes that Sonny manages to get out of this life and it just feels like he's the only one who has his back, kind of, who, like, wants to see him succeed outside of this life that he's been forced into. Yeah, at one point he says it's not an old man's game, right? And I'm thinking mm -hmm. maybe he was a younger prostitute, too, that got stuck in the town and, you know, aged with it. And later my suspicions were confirmed, but I thought there might be some kind of blood relation between the two of them. That character is a tough character. You know, he doesn't really have the right to sort of tell Sonny this or that, because if he is the father, he isn't really being a father-father, right? Like, he's just a 
pick and choose type of I'll be there when I want to dad and in a sense he's also controlled by the mother a lot as well you know it's it's a very tough situation where the mother's like this Ma Barker type and like she's got her clan underneath her or I don't know it's just very strange I, I think of her as the Red Queen or the Queen of Hearts in a sense you know and Harry D. Stanton is like the little king that sits at her knee or something like that and, and there's just like a lot of codependency going on and the mother tells Sonny almost flat out like you're my retirement fund <laughs> like I've got nothing else like I need you you need me and it's always going to be that way there's not like a greater plan that just basically whore him out until she can she's rich enough to retire but like her retirement plan is a lot to do with James Franco and Mina Suvari just going out and being two beautiful people in a sex-hungry city, I guess? They go to this couple's house. Like, they go to a party, and they just sort of hang around till the party's over, and then they just compromise the, the two homeowners. And, like, it's this weird kind of tag team. James Franco finishes up first and then walks into the room and watches Mina Suvari with the guy. The relationship, whatever the dynamic is, Mina Suvari loves James Franco, but, like, how she loves him, whether it's, like, as a brother or as like a lover, I'm not sure. It's just a weird clan that the mother has. Yeah, she says to him when he comes back to town at the beginning that he can make $5,000 a week or something, and it just doesn't appear to be the case when he starts doing it, making like 150 bucks, 300 bucks a job, but it doesn't seem like he's really getting, seems like he's struggling to get that many jobs. Yeah, no, I keep thinking of just how time-consuming it can be to be a gigolo or something. Like, each of these tricks gets longer and longer. Like, they have to go to an entire party. It reminded me of the Gatsby's, in a sense. Like, they're hanging out with all these rich folks, and they have to wait until the party's over to actually start working. What I get out of this sequence is sort of Cage, the director, again, doing this good job of showing Sonny is enjoying it. Even if he's not into it, he still puts on the face, he still puts on the act and he still tries to seduce the wife in a way and then you cut to Mina Savari and she's just working you know like she has a blank dead expression on her face you know and the the husband's like faster slower whatever he's saying and she's just like "Uh uh-huh 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 that's sort of what I get out of it is she is just like sort of sleepwalking through this job Franco is like I don't know maybe he's getting a touch of the old times the adult he's slipping into old habits again or something but I don't know I just got the the major contrast in how they work here part of that also might come just from the script like I think it is the way that Kate shoots it but I think it also comes from the script uh, written by John Carlin this movie apparently is maybe loosely based on his own life that he was born in a house of prostitution run by his great-grandmother who was like a criminal overlord he spent time in prison as a male hustler and that's where he like started writing movies and stuff his life is crazy (laughs) but I think that we maybe get a sense more that James Franco's into it Not only because he's the main character, but because the writer is kind of writing from his own perspective, his own history, and he's like, hey, you know, this is sort of how it is, that even when you're not into it, like, you you still sort of put on a show. And so after they have this little house party, they go for a ride. This is kind of when, like, Mina Suvari opens up to him. It's like a romantic moment that never gets there, and this is when I'm not sure, are they in love as lovers, or is it, like, brothers? I mean, I know that they have sex, or they compromise each other. It seems like it's it's romantic, but more in an escape kind of sense. Like, maybe if we... Well, at least from Mina Suvari's perspective, later she's like, I guess I gotta go marry this guy so that I can get out of this life and I feel like maybe you know she'd obviously rather be with James Franco but if they can somehow escape the life together 
it's more of a like this is the situation I'm in, so this is about the best I can do kind of relationship, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure when she said "I love you" if she knew what she was feeling because the mother says to her early on, like, you don't know, like, I raised that boy for women to fall in love with him and to do whatever they say for him and things like, you don't know what kind of power he can have over you and stuff. So I'm wondering if this moment, does she really love him? Is she, thinks she loves him? Does she, is she just looking for security? Is she trying to get both of them out of the game? Because they seem to have sort of flip-flopped at this point. When Sonny came home from the army, he was all about trying something else and at this point he's sort of back in the game and now Mina Savari's like we could get out I, I actually see like a, a way to escape maybe we could do it together he's not down he thinks he can be more practical about it right like he's just like people like us we can't have that kind of life almost like uh, I got from Henry from Harry Dean Stan when he's like you know we're just gonna trade a whole bunch of trouble for a whole bunch of other trouble he's almost <laughs> defeated yeah like she's talking about how she wants a baby right and how she wants to sort of be like everyone else and he says like we can't be like like everyone else like the way that we've been raised the way we've lived our lives this is what we've been pigeonholed into like this is just who we are forever yeah and she says like what am i working for if i can't get out of this and have a future when i'm done hell you're not even being practical what the hell does practical have to do with it huh you tell me one thing that's practical about our lives anyway that's exactly my point no your point is is that i don't have the right to have a baby it's not practical for whores to do anything but lay down. I don't want to do this all my life. What the hell am I working for if I can't have a future? Carol, look at me. Don't you know Jewel wanted the exact same thing you want right now? Don't you see the insanity of it? Don't play me, man. Jewel didn't want you. You were a fucking accident, you know it! I guess it's kind of James Franco's pessimism that puts her over the edge, because then, like, in the next scene, or the next sort of big moment that happens, that she tells him, this one guy, Troy, I guess who's one of her routine Johns, she tells Franco that she finally said yes, that they're going to get married, that do I love him? Not really, but he's going to get me out of this life, and I'm going to have something more, even if it's not exactly the more that I want. That scene is so tough because she's like, I'm going to settle, you know, or something like, I don't know, it's weird. It's like her best out is going to be one of her steady customers. So basically, she's just going to, you know, she thinks she's getting out of being a prostitute, but she's ultimately going to have to play that role now for like the rest of her life, right? Like she's going to go with, I think it's the guy from the car lot in the beginning yeah, with that's the, the Tram Zam, yeah. right? And the two red sports cars, which are very ominous. This is so heartbreaking because she sees a way, but it's like the wrong way, but it's her only way. And I'm not going to break down or anything, but like I'm just saying, like I was feeling I started feeling for her character. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just started feeling for her in a way that, like, I didn't really sympathize with previously. I mean, like, they just see the puppy, or, like, the, they see the dog who just had puppies, and, like, it's, like, this dose of reality, dose of normalcy, maybe? I don't know. Natural beauty, and they're like, why can't we have that? I guess the closest that Mina Suvari's ever going to get is with this John, this Troy, who will let you borrow his car if you blow him. Like, it just, <laughs> yeah. it's, like, a whole weird sense of, like, morals that it's the lesser of two evils. Yeah, she's totally stuck in it in the same way that Sonny is. Like, Sonny comes home and tries to do something different, and everybody just expects him to keep doing the same thing. And even if she marries this guy, like, maybe 
maybe people would respect that she was married and not expect her to be mm. a prostitute for everyone, but uh, that guy probably would have expectations about what she would be like as his wife. Yeah, like, I don't want to. I don't really want to think about what their life is going to be, you mm. know, because he's not going to treat her well. And I can also see that kind of guy going to his gross friends and being like, "Oh no, like you can take a crack." I don't really get used to it. Oh, yeah, and like it's just she's she's doomed to this awful, awful life. And even if she tries to get out, we go from Mina Suvari telling Cage that she's living leaving this life for another life, and then we go to a scene of Harry Dean Stanton playing poker in a bar with a character we don't know, and we're spending a lot of time in the scene. And I'm wondering, like, why is this happening? We don't really know him that well. We sort of know maybe by this point that he's Sonny's father. They've alluded to it, and it's not necessarily a secret, but they've never come out and said it. And so you know he's kind of important, but like it's like a two-minute scene of him like, hey, you better pay me that $60. And then he's like, all right, here's the money. And then he leaves, almost just like in Kiss of Death, right, with Helen Hunt. Um, <laughs> he just backs out of a spot and gets blasted by like an oil tanker and his car explodes and it's like where did that come from it's such a david lynch moment just the fact that the car exploded into (laughs) flames the way that it did it's like all the flames in wild at heart they were actually doing sort of a good job of building the henry character up a little bit like he takes the the mother out for her birthday to like a very fancy restaurant, right? And we get like this great scene where the maitre d is like telling her to put her shoes on, and and Henry like threatens the guy's life to go <laughs> apologize to her. So we sort of start to get a sense of what he means, you know, to the mother at least. Like he is part of her support system as well, and like I, his loss is gonna sort of cripple everything. This sequence is, <laughs> I don't know, it's almost like comical because he's sitting there playing cards, and I I forget the actor's name, but We've seen him twice before. He played cards with us in Honeymoon in Vegas. He was oh, uh, it's, it's Seymour Cassell. Seymour Cassell. And then he uh, stole Rosie Perez away from Cage, and it could happen to you. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> Side note, what I really like about those movies, in Lindsay's book she calls it the Sunshine Trilogy. I've never heard that before. Yeah. I love, you know, it was these dark indie movies. Like right before the action movies, there's just three that, what was it, because like his grandmother wanted him to be in happier movies? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You know, in this dark, depressing, gritty look at New Orleans, we're brought back to this guy, this character actor from two-thirds of the Sunshine Trilogy, and it's like this light, fun scene, and it just gets real dark in a hurry. It's a jarring contrast, you know? <laughs> like, we get this scene, he literally says, you know, things are going my way, everything's turning up Millhouse, like, I'm gonna, you know, tomorrow's <laughs> a bright new day. And then he pulls out, and it's like one of the most violent deaths you could experience, you know? And he's charred beyond recognition, and he's pretty much reduced to the symbolism of his hat there on the on, in the middle of the road. They sort of cut from the fiery explosion to their grave, and they're just at his grave, and then they go to the house, and this is when the mom, when Jewel tells him that he was the father. This is something that I don't think Cage has done yet in this point in his career, but like Franco cries a single tear, mm-hmm. and... <laughs> And he says, like, we're all failures, Mama. He realizes at this point, like, it's hopeless. Like, I'm, I could try to get out of town, but, like, life's going to get you. That single tear was great because I was watching it this afternoon and I left the room for a moment. So I came back in and rewound it. And that single tear, like, went right up his face. And I, was just... <laughs> I didn't even notice it 
upon first viewing, I, I actually rewound the scene because I wanted to hear the story about how the mother and Henry met and how they got together and mixed up. And then I noticed the single tear and I was like, you know what? I think this is the only time that I'm okay with sort of that. <laughs> in, you know, because like it's always there to punctuate something and make it so on the nose and so dead on and stuff. But for some reason, it just kind of felt, nat- I don't know, it felt more natural than I think it should have, you know, for it being such like this movie convention, cue single tear down a cheek. I did not minded i was surprised about that it's like this little bit of outburst or outpouring of emotion that i guess begins his downward spiral and this is like what we were talking about earlier that he goes out and he gets drunk he's like basically hits the street hits the town gets real real drunk doing shots like what are those shots where he like slams it and it gets fizzy like what is that tequila slammers he drank a lot of them <laughs> yeah <laughs> i only know that they're called tequila slammers because i watched that scene with the commentary and Nicolas Cage mentions them. <laughs> what I like about that drink in particular is that like, he has to do something, right? Like, It's not just cut of him downing a shot, cut of him downing a shot. It's him, he has to pick it up, slam it down. We cut to the fizz. We were saying earlier that this is sort of all restrained, and this is like what kicks off this crazy frenetic filmmaking energy from him slamming the drink down and shooting it back that kicks off this little frenzy and just compl- almost like a completely different style of movie. Yeah, totally. That scene where he goes out into the street afterwards and like everybody's rushing past him while he's kind of standing still. Cage is taking inspiration from movies that he's seen in the past or like elements of movies that he's liked and he's sort of like pasting them together into this film. Yeah, and and I like now that the character is out of control and his worldview is warped and, you know, shattered and it's just completely nuts. The camera can reflect that, you know, and the camera Mm -hmm. can do a bit more of storytelling now. And it's cool that he saved it till now because it really has an impact, you know. It is really, like, jarring and it's a sharp contrast to how the rest of the film has been made. And then we get to the moment that we've kind of been waiting for all movie. I knew that Cage played a character named Acid Yellow. And there's one shot earlier in the movie, Franco and Mina Subari walk out of a bar or something, and there's like a bunch of bikers in the background, and they're kind of ominously, and nothing happens. And I thought that might be Acid Yellow. But then Franco, in this drunken, possessed stupor, goes to almost like, you know, a Dino Velvet kind of situation, right? He just like knocks on a door, and he's like, hey, tell Acid Yellow that I'm here to see him. And I'm like, oh, here we go. And I, I can't even, like, we talked about how great Man in Red Sports Car is in Never on Tuesday. And, like, nothing will ever exceed that. But, like, whenever Cage has a color in his name, like, it is so good. And Asp Yellow, I, like, I don't even want, like, before we talk about it, I just want to play the clip because it's great. Sonny, my God, sweetheart, what are you doing here knocking on my door? Mark, Mark, think Sonny gets something sweet to drink. Sweet to drink. Oh, God, Sonny, it's so good to see you. His daddy's gonna suck Sonny's dick. Dick. Is it? Excuse me, I haven't been feeling well lately. I think I got that new bug, but... Boy, you certainly are delicious. Can you give me a date? Fuck me, man. You, you never worked men before. I tried to get you to work men, but you just... Sit, sit. I want some rough trade. I got a lot of energy. Well, sure, honey, I can get you something, but... 
First, you gotta tell me why you switched after all these years. Can you give me a date or can't you? What are you gonna do for me? Fuck you. There is a gentleman do over in a few minutes. John's one of Rick's steady tricks. But I suppose I can let you have it. Rick hasn't been feeling well lately either. You know what's expected of you. Yeah, I know. Just, just show me the It's like Cage knows that people watch his movies to see this kind of performance. And he's like, all right, I'm going to give the people a little bit of daddy. And it's crazy. It is very comparable to Never on a Tuesday, uh, in part because of the nose. Like, the nose that he had in Never on a Tuesday was this, like, long, weird thing that was, like, so clearly a fake nose. Then the nose that he has here is this big, fat thing that is, like, clearly another fake nose. And I just love that when he has the opportunity, because clearly he's the director, he has the opportunity here to do whatever (laughs) he wants to do. His, like, choice is to just make himself unrecognizable. Actually, I did watch the commentary on this part, and he said that that was his intention, was was to make himself unrecognizable because he didn't really want to be in the movie. And somehow, in order to get the actors that he wanted for the film, he had to, like, agree to be in it, to show up at some point. He chose this character for himself and decided to make himself into something that you wouldn't really, like, automatically know it was him. I see that as an intention, but I also find that hard to believe that anybody would not know this is him. <laughs> I like, know. It's... Like, there's, there's nobody else who could do this kind of thing. Everything, like, you know, his voice, his mannerisms. Kind of the reason we're doing Cage Club is because nobody else can do these things the way he does them. And it's just so clearly Cage and just delightful. When I was reading up on this, like, I, I did sort of do some research on Sunny when I was writing the book, but I didn't end up writing anything about it, which I kind of, I don't regret, but I just kind of wish I had mentioned it a little bit. The jacket or the whole outfit that he's wearing in this scene used to belong to Liberace. And <laughs> and Nicolas Cage bought it at an auction and thought, one day I'll use this. And it fit him perfectly. And <laughs> he used it for this. It's interesting. He referred to himself as the Liberace of crime when doing face-off, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> so he's got, yeah. a, got a connection there. I love anytime Nick Cage is in disguise in his films, like whether <laughs> it be the character going undercover or Nick Cage, the actor, trying to be as unrecognizable as possible. While I definitely see Never on Tuesday, I also get a lot of his performance from Deadfall here. In that film, you know, he wore a lot of falsies, his hair, and he was a big cokehead in that movie as well. And I just love the bizarreness of it all because I feel like at this point in the film we need a character like this to emphasize just how crazy everything has gone for Sonny especially you know like you walk into a room and you see acid yellow and I don't know about you guys but I turn right around (laughs) out of that room I mean I don't know what I would be doing there in the first place but like he's going there like he's seeking acid yellow out it's not like he's just happening upon him randomly like he's like I need to talk to this guy this guy's going to fix my life. Because <laughs> Franco at this point right now has like major daddy issues. Acid Yellow is sort of like a surrogate father. He kind of looks a little bit like Charlie Bodell from Peggy Sue Got Married. I saw him like, instead of becoming this crazy Eddie type, Things went off the rails, and just he 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 moved down to New Orleans and opened up his own brothel. Like this is kind of that crazy, over the top, manic, blonde hair kind of guy. That's that's what I saw from him. 
I definitely picked up, like, visually, the first thing that crossed my mind, and I think I told you, Joey, before we, we started, uh, he reminded me of Sean Penn from Carlito's Way. That film had a lot of coke in it, too, but it also got me thinking about what I actually read in Lindsay's book about how Sean Penn referred to him as a performer and not an actor, and sort of how Cage didn't really take offense to that, but recognized that it was said about him. So I, in the back of my head, I was wondering, is he sort of doing a dig on Sean Penn a little bit? Just one more thing about um, Acid Yellow sort of domain here if I'm not mistaken he appears to be like he's running like a brothel for men right it's like a gay yep. it's yeah, a gay it's brothel gay. Yeah. yeah so like this is a major line I feel that uh, Sonny's crossing I don't really get the sense that he's ever done this it just goes to show just how desperate he's become and also like nice little sort of reference to Acid Yellow having that new bug that's going around in 1981 the impending AIDS epidemic I get the impression that Sonny hasn't done this before either because Acid Yellow says like you're gonna do this or you've always said no whenever I've asked you before. Yeah I feel like the opportunity has always sort of presented itself to Sonny and he's just never taken him up on it but you also have to wonder if he really like if he has a change of heart when he's in the, in the room with the John or if he just wanted to break something, you know what I mean? Like almost like Fight Club, where the narrator says, "I just wanted to destroy something beautiful." Did he just want to beat someone and didn't want to like beat a woman? And so he knew that there was like an opportunity where he'd be like one on one in a room with a guy he doesn't know. Because when he goes in the room after he tells Ash Yellow, "I'm gonna do this." They bring in the John, and apparently it's one of their best clients. He tells Sonny, "He's like, I need to get punished." And then Franco just beats the shit out of him. Starts off by kicking him in the face and just gets down and just like, starts beating him with his bare hands until he's thrown out. I really wonder if he had planned all along to just destroy this guy or if that was a change of heart that he was going to. You know, he's on the self-destructive path. I don't know what he was thinking here. Yeah, I don't know if it was so much for the money that he was doing it or if it was more just to resolve his daddy issues. Yeah, I don't know if he intended to beat him up originally or if he just sort of thought somehow he was going to resolve his issues through intimacy with a man or like at least being just in the presence of another man yeah and i didn't necessarily get the sense that he went there to get into a fight um i'm not sure he knew what he was getting himself into entirely Uh, i kind of saw it as he's like really messed up he's drunk you know we didn't see him do drugs but he's probably he could be on something and and it's like he was raised and dominated by this woman and now he's oh it's almost like he's going to see if this male madam you know be any better he's confused and he's desperate and he's frustrated and that all is coming across you know what i'm saying like that's all i really needed to get from the scene he can't center himself and he gets kicked out. He goes back home, and we get a scene between him and Mina Suvari that's almost like the end in, a, in one way to Kiss of Death, like where David Caruso basically had his bags packed and was just about to get out of town, just sort of offer a little bit of closure. That Mina Suvari is there with Troy. They're off to get married, sort of start their new life. And she's just there to give Franco, give Sonny the second batch of cage advice in the movie. Quit now, like, no matter what the alternative is, like, wherever you're going to go, it's going to be better than your life here. Sonny, you got to get away from here. Right now, you got to get away. It's my life. It shows that I'm living. It's not your life. And you didn't choose it. She chose it for you. And she'll drag you down with it. I can't leave her now. I'll take care of Fuck her, man. Think about yourself for a change. She's always going to find girls to work for her, and you know it. We could have made it, you and me, 
It would have been tough, but we could have made it. Now you see what I got to settle for? But I'm gonna do it, man. I'm gonna quit now. Right fucking now. Even if it means with him. You gotta quit too. Right now. Don't even go back in the house. Just run. Even though her life, like, she's leaving off onto this life that who knows what future, you know, she's walking into, she still has the the wherewithal to be like, you're better than this. Like, do whatever you can and start something new. You're better than me, and, and I did it. Like, you can get out, too. However, she turns around and starts crying as if she knows she just lied to this guy's face, right? Like, it's very mixed messages for me. She's like, just go and run and don't even go home. And then she goes into this car with her, you know, new fiancé, and it's like I expected. Like, he's, like, treating her like a whore, you know? Like, she's all dud up in makeup, and he's, like, putting her in her place and yelling at her and all this stuff. So it's very strange. It's, like, this weird kind of hopeful yet depressing (laughs) situation what's even more sort of depressing and hopeful is that we get an end to this movie that we haven't really seen so far in cage club i don't think that we see him walk back to the brothel and he looks at the door to go inside and then he goes and turns and runs after mina suvari and she sees him running and she gets out of the car and they sort of embrace in the road the screen gets really saturated and sort of like fades and like it's the happy ending right like maybe she's not gonna go off this guy Maybe she's going to go off with Franco. They're both free right now. And then we cut back to Franco looking at the door, and you realize that he didn't actually run. That was just sort of like a fantasy in his head. The fact that he didn't leave, and then the movie ends with him just looking at the door, you hope that that is the ending. Like, you hope that he runs after her, but you also sort of know he's not going to. Like, that's just not who he is. That's not the life that he feels like he's, he deserves to lead. There are a lot of Cage movies that have kind of a obscure ending, but I, I liked this, and I think that it was pretty in line with, I don't know, Cage's, like, experimentation to have an ending that leaves you kind of wondering what happened to the character. With this ending here, I, I think it's actually happening and that it's reality because of the film language language that Cage, the director, has sort of built up throughout the film. You know, he doesn't he doesn't get wild or, or dreamy unless, you know, the character is in that state of mind. Right when I expect Sonny to start singing Love Me Tender, because this is very much like the end of Wild at Heart, they do that dissolve and he's standing at the front of his door and it was just imagined. And what I love about that is the sort of ambiguous yet conclusive nature to the ending here like you know that was a fantasy and he's standing in front of that door that's conclusive yet it's ambiguous as to sort of what his next move is going to be I lean more toward on the side that he feels trapped maybe more than ever because he doesn't even have Mina Savari he doesn't have her he doesn't have Harry Dean Stan he doesn't have like there's just nothing now he's got even less to work with then again now talking about it perhaps that level of freedom will allow him to sort of spread his wings and fly. I mean, we know that where James Franco will ultimately wind up is in The Wicker Man as bar guy number one. That's no right. Him and Jason Ritter will be together for one scene uh, in out. The Wicker Man. But so, it depends on what version of The Wicker Man you watch, because there's two endings. One thing that I liked about in your book, Lindsay, that you pointed out was something that I think relates to this movie, that in real life, and I didn't know this, that Cage's mother was institutionalized for a lot of his early childhood. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting, I mean, in sort of a sad, depressing way to learn that now, 
as we see, you know, Cage telling the story about Franco with a really difficult, manipulative, less-than-perfect mother in this movie. Yeah, I wonder if that's what attracted him to it in some ways, sort of that relationship. I also like that you wrote that he, that's basically maybe why he became an actor, right? That yeah. he, oh, I mean, that's, that's just like a dark, dark, like, I don't, like, did you know that about his mother? I had just known that she was a dancer and an artist. I, I was not aware of her mental illness, and that it's got to be hard for anyone to go through, let alone a child who's looking to their parent for support or guidance. And that's a big hole to fill. And it's kind of, in a weird way, makes sense that, you know, it would retreat into like a fantasy life or make up an ideal life to live from time to time or have imaginary friends and stuff so I, I can understand how it almost sparked his interest in acting. Yeah, there was two things that he said about that in, in interviews. He said that um, one aspect of that was that he sort of like watched a lot of TV and sort of looked to the ideal lives of sitcoms or whatever on TV and sort of like got wrapped up in that and so that was part of what I guess led to him wanting to act but then the other thing was him like going to see his mother in the hospital and then seeing all the other I think what he called like characters that were in the hospital as well and sort of being half terrified by that and half in the long run inspired by it but at the time it was a bit scary for a little kid what I like that's sort of more positive and happy in in kind of like a with sort of like a dark undertone is that another thing that you said sort of inspired him to become an actor was that he was getting bullied at school, and then so he invented this cousin oh, character. I love that story. <laughs> I love that story so much. I want him to make this movie where <laughs> he just like was getting picked on by this like bigger kid, and so he basically like went home and like put on like a jacket and sunglasses, yep. and then went up to the kid and was just like, "Hey, stop picking on Nicky, or I'll kick your ass." And then, yep. and then he stopped picking on him. Like that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was so good. <laughs> he had it's a name like... too. I don't remember what the name was. It's almost like foreshadowing his role in adaptation. He plays two versions of himself ahead of his time. Roy Richards. That's it. Right. Oh, that's great. It's even got <laughs> alliteration like a comic book character would. I mean, I guess this had to be before Godfather. Because, I mean, as soon as Godfather comes out, right? Like, who's going to pick on Nick Cage? I mean, I, I mean, kids will pick on kids whoever, but, like, you're like, hey, you know, my uncle just made, like, the, be- the best movie of all time. Like, you know, stop stop picking on me. Maybe I'll invite you over. The other thing that I like that you wrote about, or the, like, these, just these little details that we're so focused on the movies that he does that we haven't really, or at least I haven't, looked into his past how he wanted to portray Cameron Poe in Con Air was that he wanted to be the adult version of the eighth grader he looked up to as a second grader. (laughs) (laughs) Just this cool older kid, you know, probably in a wife beater, just like this 14, 15 year old, you know, working on his car. He's like, I'm going to be the adult version of that. Like, that's great. Yeah, I was thrown off by the fact that an 8th grader was working on a car. I thought, isn't that young to have a car? (laughs) But I don't know. I also love how Cameron Poe is sort of what I would think an 8th grader's idea of like an ultimate action star would be in a sense, you know? Like he's just got like that Superman quality to him in a way, right? Like this fantastical invulnerability in a sense. I don't know. I just look at that action character out of all of his the most and say it's the most like a comic book or something like that. I like that he turned down the Jeff Daniels role in Dumb and Dumber so you can make Leaving Las Vegas instead. Can you imagine, Mike, oh. that like, like having, like, I I do not like at all the Farrelly Brothers movies. I'm sure if Cage is in one, you know, I would, I would like it more, but, like, to throw away arguably his best performance, I mean, especially, you know, most critically lauded performance, right. 
for Dumb and Dumber? Like, oh my yeah, god. He should have had the Jim Carrey role, right? Like, the starring role. You don't want to see him as second banana. There's a lot of times we play, like, What If on Cage Club about, you know, what if the best of times had taken off and he became a TV star? What if he became, like, a like in Dumb and... Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's funny because he's friends with Jim Carrey, or was at one time, so it would be interesting to see him do something like that, but yeah, not at, not at the expense of leaving Las Vegas. Yeah, like, I'm glad we get Nicolas Cage in comedies, but I like the tone of those. I, I'm not so much into these, like, slapsticky over-the-topness. Like, as far as he goes in the slapstick direction is, like, you know, Trapped in Paradise with him and his Three Stooges brothers and stuff. And so, like, I'm just glad they're not dropping anvils on each other's heads in that movie. I mean, if not for anything else, I'm just glad we didn't have to watch Dumb and Dumber for Cage Club. I know. <laughs> I think one sort of nice way to kind of wrap things up is that you write toward the end of the book how, with an abundance of cynicism in our media, the most popular cultural writing favors snark over sincerity, Cage's reminder that it's okay to care, even if it makes you look ridiculous. That's almost kind of like your thesis for the book and the kind of, like, sort of the, the driving force behind Cage Club. He just cares, and he commits to these things, like, this is who he is, and this is what he wants to do, and love him or hate him, like, this is who he is, and he's not going to half-ass something. If he's in something, even if it's not great, he's going to give it his all. I think that's what's frustrating about loving him, is that people think it's an ironic thing, and, like, that's sort of become synonymous with him, is that people, if people do like him, then maybe they like him ironically for like the whole meme or whatever but I take him very seriously <laughs> I mean I enjoy him in a fun way too but like I think he's doing things that he takes his craft seriously and I think that people should you know show him some respect and I like that you say at the very end that if he that James Lipton in Inside the Actors Studio which we might watch soon that he asked him like you know if you got up to heaven what would you want God to say and he's like bless you for trying <laughs> you can never fault him for not being committed to something you know whatever he does whether it's you know later in the career he's doing one of those quote-unquote paycheck movies that people might say yeah he's always going to give the movie his all bless him for trying totally there's a lot of actors that get more credit than he does who will do the odd movie where they just phone it in and i don't think cage has ever phoned it in even if the movie wasn't great like i don't really want to rewatch deadfall <laughs> if you just give me like the 45 minutes like from the time he shows up until the time his head is soaked in that deep fat fire. <laughs> yeah <laughs> like I don't need what's before that. I don't need the crazy Bond villains after that. Like, just give me that. (laughs) Like, give me what he is in these movies. Never on Tuesday. I don't care about the other 89 and a half minutes. Just give me the 30 seconds of Man in Red Sports Car. Yeah, I have a friend that watched Deadfall, and she said she stopped watching after Cage died. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, maybe I don't blame you. Yeah, it does this incredible job of attempting to compromise for the lack of Nicolas Cage in its film. You know, it was just like he brought such an amazing presence to that movie that after he's gone we get like a guy with a crazy claw hand and Charlie Sheen (laughs) perhaps playing the devil in like the most boring game of pool the claw hand was great but other than that (laughs) that's about it (laughs) that's about all I have for Sonny any last thoughts that either of you want to share I'd seen this two other times before watching it for this and I think I liked it more this time I don't know. I think before I just kind of thought some of the stuff made a lot of sense knowing that Cage directed it, but it didn't really like do a lot for me as a movie. And I think it did a little more for me as a movie this time. I like this movie. I mean, it, it took me completely by surprise. I had 
no idea what it was about. I mean, there just aren't that many movies about this subject matter. I mean, there's a lot of movies about people trapped in places they don't want to be, you know, but uh, within the context of sort of this male prostitution, I just felt that it kind of elevated the material from something more typical. And I definitely wish Nick Cage has had directed another movie by now, and I really hope he gets the chance to do something else at some point. So that'll just about do it for Sonny. Thank you so much, Lindsay Gibb, for A, writing this amazing book, and B, spending Cage Club with us. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. Sure, and you will be back for a couple episodes. That's very exciting. So for all things Cage Club, you can go to cageclub.me. You can find our reviews for this movie and past movies. You can find past podcasts. You can learn how to follow us on Twitter, learn how to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. All sorts of fun stuff. One-stop shopping, all things Nicolas Cage, at cageclub.me. You can buy Lindsay Gibbs' book on Amazon. It's available in both paperback, this adorable little purple book, and also on Kindle. It's National Treasure Nicolas Cage. It's part of the Pop Classics series. So if you like Cage Club, I mean, you're going to like the book. Like, it's basically a smarter version of Cage Club. Like, I don't think what we're doing here is necessarily dumb, but, like, this is well-researched and well-written in a way that us just talking about movies kind of on the fly isn't always. So it's great, and I definitely recommend it. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. That's Lindsay Gibb, and we'll see you next time on Cage Club.